So we are uh, continuing on in First Kings. You remember we've uh, we've been at this for some time now. This is uh, since we started First Samuel. This is, um, I believe it was First Samuel anyway. It may have been Judges that we started this, but uh, since we started Judges, we're on the, or whatever book it was, we're on the 54th um, episode through this. So uh, we're looking a little bit at a time at the text as we go through these um, massive history books of, of the children of Israel. But more than history, they're, they're also teaching us um, incredible things about the way the Lord has worked throughout history, the way he has shaped history, the way he is, is bringing about its ultimate conclusion in Christ. And we're certainly building toward that. And so we, ha- we're in the middle of first Kings. This is going to be the last uh, episode of, of this before we transition into looking at the relationship between prophets and Kings. And we're going to start with um, Ahab next, next week and, um, and Elijah. So we're going to start transitioning into prophets and then writing prophets and all of that as we get closer and closer to the time of exile, which is sort of the big culminating event in these books. And so uh, as we sort of build this history of Israel, I think it, it helps to just kind of know where we're going and then also where we've been. So let's take a, just a brief second to review where we were last time. Um, we remember um, Abijam that w- last time was all focused on the south, was all focused on the southern kingdom. Remember, Israel, the children of Israel, divided into two kingdoms, two tribes to the south, uh, Judah and Benjamin. And then Levi is also serving in the temple. And then in the northern kingdom, there's 10 tribes that are associated with all of the, the kingdom of the north. And so there are two kings, uh, really two groups of people all together. So it's hard. I have to clarify where we are in each one. But last time we were all in the south, all in the kingdom of Judah, which is considered to be the legitimate kingdom. It's the one that's going to follow the line of David. Uh, It's going to be the one that ultimately will lead to Jesus coming to the throne. But Abijah, uh, or you may hear it, Abijah, had reign and uh, he was in control of the Southern kingdom. And under his reign, the Canaanite influences that were there under Rehoboam continued and they even increased while he was on the throne. Um, Remember his mother was a really wicked woman and she was instrumental in leading the, the tribe of Judah or the Southern kingdom into apostasy she, it looked like, uh, it, based on the text, it seems that she uh, erected an, an, an Asherah pole in Jerusalem, which led to further, um, you know, idolatry. And Abijam was no help to that at all either. Well, then due to the Lord's mercy and providence, Asa comes to the throne. And his first 10 years are relatively peaceful. And during that time of peace in his first 10 years, we're looking at the years 911 to 901. That was his first 10 years. Um, not only is there peace, but there's there it starts to lead to this religious reformation in the land where Asa not only destroys the Asherah pole of, uh, of Ma'akah, uh, Abijam's mom, Asa's grandmother, but then also he removes her as queen mother from the from the land. He he 
you know, takes her out. She's, you know, kind of relegated to nothing basically in the land. And so he has, he's cleared out a lot of these things. Uh, he, and it's led to a great re- religious reform. And, and we talked about last time, what, why that was the case, why that happened. And really the ultimate conclusion is it was just the Lord's grace and mercy so that he didn't bring judgment on the Southern kingdom swiftly. Cause he would have, I, I suppose, had he not, you know, provided them some sort of um, religious reformation where they were actually worshiping the Lord truly uh, yet again, or were at least led by a King who was doing so. And so eventually though, Asa finds himself embroiled in these wars where he's being provoked by the Northern kingdom, uh, a, a King by the name of Basha, which we're going to look at tonight a little bit, but um, um, Basha goes into the Southern kingdom and starts building a fortification at a town called Ramah, which is right near the border between Israel and Judah, between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And remember, we talked about why he was doing that. There's this issue going on in the North where the Northern Kings are put on the throne by God. But when they get on the throne, they have this bout with extreme paranoia. Uh, If I could just kind of put a little bow on the text anyway, they have this sort of bout with paranoia where they're fearful that all of their people are going to go down to the south into the temple and worship there. And so we saw this all the way back with Jeroboam in the north and all of the people that have followed after him, they, they have this same kind of concern in this battle of paranoia. So they start to do things to try to keep their people in the north. So uh, Jeroboam, remember, built high places. He built temples in the north and kind of started a new religious practice, put in a new priesthood, did all of this kind of stuff and led them into idolatry. Ironically, that was the thing that ended up it caused him to lose the kingdom. Well, um, you know, Basha builds this fortification down at Ramah, which is the main passageway all that leads all the way down into the southern kingdom to basically block his people from coming down there. Well, Asa doesn't really like the fact that somebody's building a fortification in his area and his territory and preventing the northern kingdom from coming down there. And so they get embroiled in um, these battles, which last almost the rest of Asa's reign. He's just uh, tormented by wars. This is also, even though Asa is leading the, the, you know, the southern kingdom in a, a generally the right direction, especially in comparison to his father's, there's still some, uh, judgment that we see in the text itself in the fact that they're embroiled in war um you know war is a product of judgment what happened with solomon after david dies how does solomon know it's time to build his kind of edenic paradise of the temple well god had given him rest on all sides from all his enemies well we don't really see that again uh in in I mean, maybe in fits and starts here and there with some of the people in the South, but but largely it's not peaceful. And in almost every king's reign, they're going to ha- be in, in, embroiled in, in various kinds of, uh, you know, wars and things like that. And, and so it's a sign that all is not well in the land. And that's certainly true in Asa's case, though he has the first, you know, 10 or 11 years of peace. Um, that comes to an end and all of a sudden he's back into war again. So we, 
we in this in the southern kingdom we moved almost we moved into the 800s all right now what we're going to do is back up and look at the northern kingdom so we're going to go we're going to take a step back the only way to really do it so if you can kind of keep your timelines in in play if you remember down at the end of your packet that I that I emailed out to you at the very end is a a pretty good pretty decent timeline I think of the kings and when they reigned. So we were in the south and we got to Asa who goes all the way to 870. Now we're going to go back to Nadab, Basha, and Elah, and Zimri, and we're going to end with Omri. And then next time we're going to pick up with Ahab, which is where Elijah is concerned. So basically we're going to, we're going to hit these kings really pretty quick in pretty quick succession because they reign in quick succession. What we're going to find in the Northern Kingdom is that everything is incredibly chaotic. Look at some of the years, even just if you look at your timeline, look at some of the years that we're looking at here, 910 to 909, 909 to 886, that's the longest one, 886 to 885, then there's Zimri, 885, then Omri, 885 to 874, you know, so it's not until we get to Ahab that we we actually get a little bit longer of a reign with the exception of Basha, who's the longest reigning king in the north up to that point. So uh, let's go back with that in mind. Let's let's kind of look at what's happening in the northern kingdom uh, with this rapid succession and why these things are coming about. So after Jeroboam died, his son Nadab, Nadab takes the throne in Israel. Now, Remember, the Lord had promised sometime before to Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam, if you go think with me for just a second, we're in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam is really nervous that all of his people are going to go to the south and start worshiping in the temple. And so Jeroboam decides to create a cult. Basically, it's a, it's a cult. It's like this syncretistic religion that worships all kinds of things. Uh, and has bits of Judaism with bits of other things in the surrounding areas with lots of worship of Baal and, and many other things. And he builds these two prominent high places, one in the north and one in the south, so that the northern, the group in the north can kind of go to that one and the ones in the south can go to that one. It also prevents a lot of his people from going into Judah and worshiping at the temple. And so Jeroboam is really kind of uh, nervous about his people leaving. And so what does he do? He builds these high places and, uh, and because he does, God sends a prophet to Jeroboam, Ahijah the Shilonite, remember? He goes to Jeroboam and the prophet tells Jeroboam that his line would be removed from the throne of Israel. Okay, that was the prophecy and that was the promise that was made to Jeroboam as he's worshiping in the temple. If you don't remember that, let's look at our verse packet. Uh, one, uh, First Kings 14, 7 to 16. It, it says, God tells this to the prophet, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Um, and yet you have not been like my servant David, 
who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which is right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die and Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today and henceforth. The Lord will strike uh, Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of the out of this good land that he gave their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and made Israel to sin. Okay, so how does this end up coming to be? Well, um, uh, so we've got the prophecy now. Nadab uh, is, we see in the, even in the years of his reign, 910 to 909, he only is reigning for two years. But in those two years, he was no less evil than, uh, than Jeroboam was. He continued in evil practices. And so what happens to him? Well, he's off fighting a war in Gibbethon, which is, if you look at the map here, Tirzah is the capital of the northern kingdom at this time. That's going to change by the end of tonight. But for right now, Tirzah is the capital up here, kind of in the middle of, uh, of the northern kingdom. So uh, Nadab sends all of his men down here into Philistine territory, into Gibbethon, which is right here on the border of Israel and Philistia. So basically what you can see what he's trying to do is push out the Philistines and basically capture this territory. Why is he going to capture it? Well, I mean, probably this area right here would not only give him more land, but it would also give him uh, basically surround, he would be able to surround Judah and probably have access to the south on into Egypt, but be able to to landlock Judah, which is, you know, I, I mean, if you've ever played Risk, it's a battle of, of territories, right? So, uh, <laughs> so um, while he, while Nadab is off fighting with all of his men, all of his men are fighting here in Gibbethon. This presents a really easy time for any enemy uh, to come in and attack the northern kingdom and take the throne, because the army is already preoccupied with another uh, another war, and so uh, Basha, who is this random guy from Issachar. We don't know much about him at all, except that he just, he rises up out of Issachar and he attacks and kills Nadab. And then not only does he attack and kill Nadab, but then he cuts off violently all of Nadab's family. 
And so he ends because of Bashaw doing this. He, he killed every male in the, in, um, in, uh, in his family because he does this, he cuts off the dynasty of Jeroboam forever. Jeroboam now has nobody left on the throne. The dynasty changes hands. Uh, so this is, most of this is pretty normal when it comes to kingdoms, okay? If you remember, if you go all the way back to the Exodus, we talked about the dynasties in Egypt. And we're used to hearing dynasties in Egypt, the 18th dynasty, the 19th dynasty, the 20th dynasty, uh, the Hyksos dynasty, a bunch of other dynasties that ruled in Egypt. Well, basically what those are is new families that would come into the territory, conquer the old king, and ta-da, now they're on the throne, okay? Well, we're not used to seeing that in Israel, really, because it was, uh, it was Saul. He was the first dynasty. Then it was David. But now that David was on the throne, it was, hey, you're, this is it. That's the, the second dynasty in Judah is it, right? It's going to carry through all the way to Jesus. Jesus is one in a line of the, basically the second dynasty, if you will, in the South. But in the North now, because they're the rebellious, they're the uh, illegitimate, you might say, kingdom, their, their dynasties are going to, are, are like a revolving door and mostly don't last beyond just a few years. And so here is Jeroboam. He commits this sin. God tells him, hey, your kids are going to be cut off. So his son reigns for two years and boom, new dynasty comes in and cuts off the entire, uh, basically cuts off violently all of the, all of the, uh, the kids that Jeroboam would ever have reign on, sit on the throne, which fulfilled the prophecy. So to ensure that Jeroboam would never rise again, Basha went out and exterminated the entire royal family. And so I want to read that here in 1 Kings uh, 15, 25 to 32. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. Uh, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Basha entered, uh, Basha, Basha, the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar, conspired against him, and Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, for Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gibbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, of king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his prophet Ahijah the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin. And because the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha the king of Israel, all their days, um, which we already saw again last week. So to fulfill exactly what the Lord had already said, um, he comes in and he destroys the entire royal family. So Basha is, um, I think I skipped one maybe. Uh, yeah, I don't have a slide in there. I'm sorry, I'm missing a slide. Um, Basha, so on your worksheet here, Basha, founder of Israel's second dynasty, uh, reigned for 24 years from 909 to 886. So actually a pretty long reign in comparison to 
you know, most of the kings of the north. And all of them, his entire reign, he's reigning right alongside Asa in Judah. So Asa's reign um, encompasses, I guess you could say, Bashar's entire reign in the northern kingdom. And so, um, however, in spite of the dynasty changing hands, does the actions of, do the actions of the king actually change at all? Absolutely not. Bashar continues just like Nadab, just like Jeroboam, to continue to walk in sin. And so, um, you know, I, I think I missed two slides here. Sorry, I'm sorry. Good grief. Um, so before long, uh, a prophet, Jehu ben Hanani, pronounced, uh, pronounced on Bashar the very judgment Ahijah had pronounced on Jeroboam. So once again, the, the, the actions of the king are, they continue just like Jeroboam. And what does God do? Remember, just for a second, these are still his children in the sense of he is over the kingdom of Israel. They answer to him. He is judging them directly in, in a way unlike he judges the rest of the world, where he holds the kings to account um, every generation of the kings to account. And when they step out of line, when they sin, he judges, he removes their line and, and so on and so forth, like we've seen already. And so he steps in and corrects the nation of Israel. Um, but how does he do it? He gives a word of warning by the, he sends a prophet. So Bashaw, um, he, he pronounces uh, on Bashaw the very judgment, Ahijah, that's A-H-I-J-A-H, had pronounced on Jeroboam. Um, the king's house would be utterly annihilated, even though God in his mercy had allowed him to come to power in the first place. So I want you to see just a couple of these things. Look at, look at 1 Kings 15, 33 to 34. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Bashah, the son of Ahijah, began to reign over all Israel at Tirzah. And he reigned 24 years uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So what does the Lord do in 16.1? And the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Bashah, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Bashah and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Anyone belonging to Bashah who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. You've heard this before, right? Same prophecy is coming right back to Bashah because he has committed the same sins. And what are those sins? Well, he has continued to worship false gods. He has continued to keep uh, up the places where false gods are worshipped. He has continued, most importantly, to lead the entire nation of the north away from the Lord in worship of other gods. Now, most likely walking in the same footsteps as Jeroboam, it's still because of that same kind of um, mentality or that same kind of fear that his people are going to vacate toward the south and go to the temple. With Bashar, we saw this happen last time where he actually does that. He builds that fortification down there in the south because he wants to prevent his people from going down to the south and worshiping in the temple. And so 
it, but ironically, it's those, it's that practice of preventing his people from going to the temple that causes him to lose the kingdom. So he's, he's in his mind, he's paranoid, and yet he steps into sin, which actually causes him to lose the kingdom. Um, all right. So now I think we're back on uh, where the slides now. Um, so though raised from the dust, like Adam, Bashar rebels like Adam. And we can see that um, he, here in verse 2. Look at, look at uh, 1 Kings 16, 2. Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel. Um, he exalted him out of the dust like Adam, and yet he sins like Adam. He rebels against God like Adam. And so his dynasty mirrors Jeroboam's almost to the word. The prophet even comes in and says the same thing. It mirrors in its, in its, sin, in its sinfulness, and his dynasty is going to end in the same way that Jeroboam's dynasty ends, almost exactly. And so it's a, you, you see this kind of a repetition, and that's one thing that we're, we're going to see in the northern kingdom in particular, is that sin is not new. The people think that they've got really great ideas and they're going to go, they're going to, you know, uh, you know, prevent the people from going to worship and these kinds of things. And they end up stumbling into the exact same sins of their father. They continue to repeat the past over and over and over again. And the judgments that come back are the same time and time again. And yet they don't uh, change because their hearts are, are hard. So when Bashad dies, uh, his son, Elah, takes the throne. Notice how long... Elah reigns, 886 to 885, just two years. So here's Elah, and he is a piece of work, let me tell you. So <laughs> Elah, Elah is happy that he's the king. And it's good to be the king, apparently, because everybody serves you. And so what does he do? But he... In celebrating his, you know, luxurious living, um, gets really drunk and just fills up on the wine in the kingdom, I guess. And um, his chief and he's at his his chief steward uh, Arz's house, and Z a man by the name of Zimri comes in, and who had commanded his chariots comes in and attacks him right there in the house of his, his chief steward. So let's look at this in 1 Kings 16, 8 to 14. In the 20th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Tirzah. Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. So Asa is still on the throne in the south and reigned in his place. When he began to reign, as soon as he was seated, him, as soon as he seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave a single male of his relatives in his, or his friends. Then Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah, his sons, 
which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord uh, of God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Elah, uh, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So this is, I mean, this is like an exact, might as well copied and pasted exactly what just happened to the previous king. He reigns on the throne for a good while. Jeroboam does. His son comes in, reigns two years, uh, dies a tragic death by someone in his own kingdom while he's fighting a war in the same place as Elah is. All right. But here's the di- a little bit of a difference with Elah, which uh, w- we'll see in this, this, on this slide. He's doomed before his reign begins because like David, uh, who decided to stay at home, remember that where David's army is all fighting and David stays at home and that's how David gets in trouble. Well, Elah seems to repeat that same mistake too. His whole uh, in- army is in Gibbethon, as we find out in 1 Kings uh, 16, 15, their, their army is in Gibbethon. And where is he? He's back in the capital while his army is off fighting and he's drinking himself drunk. And so he stays there and living in the lap of luxury while his troops are in Gibbethon. And while he's preoccupied both with his drunkenness and with his military not there to defend him, his commander of the chariots decides, hey, if I want the throne, now's the time to take it. I know exactly where the king is. He's drunk, so he can't fight. Nobody's there to protect him. And I have all the chariots. So he goes in and takes the throne. Okay, no big deal, right? But there's a huge problem. And that is that Zimri, you notice how long he reigns. Not long, all right? Um, Zimri has no divine sanction to come in and take the throne from anybody. So God, when he prophesied that Basha's family would be taken off the throne, uh, and we see that in Elah, and we see that Zimri does that. Zimri is the, is the tool which with, with the Lord uses to remove the house of, of Basha from the throne in the northern kingdom. Although that's the case, Zimri does not have any design sanction to reign on the throne. And so his dynasty survives for a whopping seven days. Yep. I mean, you know, I feel like I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident I, I could reign for seven days. <laughs> I think that's not hard. That's not a hard record to beat. Uh, he is removed in swift fashion. Why? Because as it turns out, if you if if it if it's a military coup and you only have half the chariots, the person who has the bigger uh, army will end up taking you out because you don't have all the 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 militaries the military behind you. So what happens here? Well, when word of the coup reaches the camp of the men at Gibbethon, um, Omri, who is the general down there. All the men in the military say, Psh, I don't know who Zimri is. Omri is our king. And so they name Omri king. And so um, there's now a battle between Omri and Zimri. And you can tell by how long Zimri reigned who lost that battle. <laughs> Omri, who is the general of the army, realizing that the person who commands half the chariots took over the throne, Omri is going to march the, the armies right back into 
Tirzah, and he's going to take the throne from Zimri. So if might makes right, as they often say, then Omri has the might in this case. And so he's going to take the throne from Zimri. So look at this in 1 Kings 16, 15 to 20. In the 20th, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, down in the south, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops who were encamped heard it and said, Zimri has conspired and he has killed the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri the commander of the armies of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri, Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him. That means mainly the army is going with him. And they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, check this out. This is a great, just a, I mean, how else do you end your own kingdom? Here it is. When Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of the of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and for his sins, which he committed making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So, um, how does he end? He sees I'm outnumbered. I've got no chance of, of, you know, defending this kingdom against anybody who would come and take it, especially Omri. And so if I can't have it, nobody can. So he just goes and burns the whole place down. And uh, which, you know, I guess is a logical conclusion one would come to when they see that kind of thing happening. But notice that all of this is a result of sin. Every single king that ends on the throne in the north, it says every single time he sinned, he made Israel to sin with him. And how does their reign end? It ends treacherously. It all ends in utter catastrophe. It's either ending by a proclamation, You're, all your sons are going to die, which is not a good thing for a father to hear, by the way. Second, it ends with armies coming against your sons and killing them or taking them over or dying in horrific ways. And so in these massive coup attempts, there's no peace whatsoever because sin reigns throughout the kingdom. So Omri takes the throne and we saw that he, li he lives for quite a while and he's, um, he's a, uh, a king for a pretty long time in the, in the Northern kingdom, at least by comparison. So we think that he kind of has it easy, right? Absolutely not. Uh, an easy accession for Omri was not to be because think about it for just a second. If the military comes in in a coup, takes over the throne and the military is sitting on the throne, basically, and the commander of the half the chariots is sitting on the throne. Well, then the rest of the army hears about it and they're going to take over the throne from that person. And so it's one coup attempt right after another. Within the span of eight days, you have three different kings over the north. Well, what's going to happen then? Then it's just a free-for-all. Until there's some stability, until a strong arm comes in and, and levels off the kingdom, it's just one battle right after another of who is the strongest. And so when Omri takes the throne, a man by the name of uh, Tibni bin Ginnath, and I don't expect you to remember all those names. Lord knows I probably will not. Um, had he, he gains this following. And for the, I mean, for really for much of the time in the Northern Kingdom, there's going to be these rivals that kind of pop up. And uh, Tibni is the first one. And so 
there is this crisis of leadership near immediately for Omri. And um, eventually uh, Omri is going to, you know, vanish this guy. He's going to, he's going to kill this guy. And so then he will eventually stand on alone, uh, stand alone and unopposed. It says in, in first Kings 16, 21 and 22, then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath to make him King and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. And so Tibni died and Omri became king. Likely that's because Omri's got a lot of the fighting men with him. So it's going to be hard to overcome Omri. And so he establishes his throne in the northern kingdom. And for the first six of his 12 years, Omni stays at Tirzah. But here's the important thing that we've got to remember with Omri. When it comes to the Northern Kingdom, and I know there's a temptation as we go through all these names to try to memorize all the names and try to remember all that. And that's great if you can, if you have that kind of photographic memory. I do not. I constantly have to go back and remember who who came next. And I don't remember, wait, how long did they reign? That kind of thing. And so I don't remember all those things like a Rolodex. However, there are important highlights along the way to recall. And Omri is one of those. If for no other reason, then he moves the capital from Tirzah to Samaria. Um, so he bought an imposing hill from Shemer and renamed it Samaria, which is actually a very similar name uh, in Hebrew, Shemer and Samaria. So he, uh, now the reason Samaria is really important is because Samaria becomes the capital of the northern kingdom until Assyria comes in and captures all the people in the north and takes them off into captivity. And you'll remember probably Samaria also has a familiar, at least the name is probably familiar in the New Testament. You remember that there is a group of people called the Samaritans who are in the north, right? Now, the Samaritans are, there's a, remember the, People in Galilee up in the north and people in Judea in the south hate the Samaritans. In fact, if you can see my mouse on this map, when the Galileans, in fact, when Jesus actually goes down to the temple where we are in Matthew, when he goes down, I didn't talk too much about this on Sunday, but when he goes down from Galilee, they walk out here uh, past the Jordan, east of the Jordan, around Samaria, and then re-enter near Jericho, uh, the land. They walk around Samaria. And that was common practice for people in the Galilean region to walk around Samaria and go, uh, and go in because when Assyria comes in, which we'll cover this later, but when, some, when Assyria comes in and takes these people off into captivity, they leave some Assyrians behind. They marry with some of the, the northern kingdom and they have kids with them. So they're intermarried with Assyrians. They adopt a new kind of religion. They're pagans. And so the people in the South and the people in the North feel like the people in Samaria or the, the people in the Northern Kingdom are traitors. They have betrayed um, the Jews and by intermarrying with the uh, Assyrians. So, and so, and largely those people are made up of Assyrian bloodlines. So they don't want anything to do with them. So anyway, Samaria becomes really, really important. It's the capital city and will be the capital city. A lot of times you're going to hear the Northern Kingdom referred to as Samaria. But also the reason that Omri is really important. Um, oh, 
under under Omri, the uh, this capital falls to the Assyrians in 722. So he establishes um, that king, the capital city in Assyria and in, in uh, Samaria, and the Assyrians come in in 722, and they're going to lay siege to the capital and they're going to haul off the northern kingdom into captivity. But Omri is one of the most influential of Israel's early kings, even though he doesn't reign for that long. And you can see, uh, let's see, Omri is 885 to 874. So it's only 11 years that he reigns on the throne. And yet he's still one of the most influential because he establishes that capital. A lot of the kings that follow after him and reign at that capital become known as the children of Omri and the, the, and the Northern kingdom becomes the house of Omri. He's kind of like that first king that establishes the, the capital city in Assyria. And so it becomes the kind of establishment of the kingdom. It was probably also a pretty wealthy kingdom under Omri too. So he, he became a really prominent king. So Omri is one of those ones that's kind of significant, even though there's not tons of information on him. We do know some of those things. But what happens again and again and again? We're going to find with Omri, we find with basically all of the people in the north, they constantly run to idolatry. Israel's uh, run of kings and overturned dynasties is a product of nothing but idolatry time and time again. Why is that? Because the northern kingdom forgot what their mission was from the get-go. They had no clue. God was the one that established the throne in the northern kingdom. He's the one that set the king up, Jeroboam, for, for the first, in the first place, and was the one that gave him his commission. Jeroboam sins by running to idolatry. What they're trying to do is establish this presence in the north that gives their kind of their nation this identity. They want this national identity, but they want it apart from the sovereign Lord. So they want to establish a national identity that's different than the South, but that's not their commission. And every time they do that, the Lord takes them off their high horse. Um, you know, I think it, it, it's, it's false to draw a straight line from the kingdoms of Israel or Judah to the nations of the world, like America, let's say. I don't think we are under the same... Uh, obligations that Israel was in the Old Testament, and I think that has largely passed. But what I do think uh, it is important to do is think about what God's commission for his people has always been. His people's commission is to worship him and to serve him and to build up his body. So we're his church. We're still his people. Um, and in many ways have a very similar commission in the sense that we're to proclaim him. We, Peter calls us in the New Testament, a kingdom of priests. We are to build one another up. And in Revelation, you'll see at the very beginning of the book, the seven churches in Revelation, they are warned. Why? Because they have forgotten those things. Every single one of them. So the commission that the church is under is very similar to that which um, any kingdom or any group of, that was ever called God's people has always been under. 
It's always been to worship the Lord and continue with steadfastness to keep your heart in line with his commandments, with his, with his word. And so our number one objective as a church, we've said from the beginning, is to worship the Lord. Second to that is to bring others into the worship of the Lord. That's our missional directive, you might say. But, and, and, but that's been true of God's people since the beginning. And where, in, even in Revelation, where Jesus says he's going to snuff out their lampstands is when they forget that, when they cease to do that. So you can look around at churches. Uh, uh, America is filled with them. Churches who uh, are convinced that their job is to be, you know, hip and trendy and really cool and unhitch themselves from the Old Testament and unhitch themselves from the Bible and whatever. And inevitably what you find is those churches begin either their rapid decline or they gain such popularity that they lose the gospel entirely. And so our objective, and we must check it every day, is to ensure that we're continuing to teach the word, we're continuing to preach the word, we're continuing to learn the word, understand it, grow in it, uh, grow in our knowledge of the Lord so we can worship him and, and again, make him known. Questions? I, I have a question, Mike. Sure, Doug. So um, God, God set up Jeroboam because of the hardness, the lack of compassion of Rehoboam. And so that uh, Northern Kingdom developed, and, and later on they uh, they got so far from the truth. And when Jesus talked with the woman at at the at the well of Samaria, it was obvious that they didn't know the truth, and they had gotten away from uh, doing the temple worship. And I was uh, the question I have is, is since he set up a se- separate Northern Kingdom, he didn't set up a separate worship. Um, they were, I think they were to still keep the feast of Israel. They were to worship in the temple of Jerusalem. Uh, but how, how would that have been possible? Let's say that you would have had a righteous king in the northern kingdom. How would they have gone to the, I mean, those are these ones that you're talking about, kept, try to keep the people from migrating to the south to worship. But if they had got, and the reason they did that is because they thought if they go to the south, uh, they'll just live there and the northern kingdom will be weakened. So how would a righteous king from the north, how should he have um, handled the worship issue? He would have let them go to the temple and worship. They, You're right in that they were, there, there was no commission whatsoever given to the northern kingdom to uh, institute any new places of worship. Their people were still to go to, to Jerusalem and worship. And we, what's that? Including the king, right? Yeah, including the king. Let's Absolutely. Say if he had been a righteous king, he should have gone to Jerusalem for the feast and worship. Yes. The temple. And instead, he erected two high places, one in the south and one in the north in Dan. And but, but politically, that would have been very unstable, wouldn't it? So if you have like the king leading a band of his followers to Jerusalem to worship. No, pretty soon. That's my point is it wouldn't have been unstable, but he thinks it would be. All the kings in the north think that would lead to instability. If we allow the, our people to go down south and worship in the temple, that would lead to instability. 
But what actually leads to instability is preventing that from happening by establishing high places in the Northern Kingdom. It breaks conventional wisdom. Okay. That, that's the, that's what first Kings is laying out here in this run of Kings is that what is happening with the Kings breaks conventional wisdom, but actually applies to spiritual wisdom that he should let his people go down. He should let them worship the Lord. He should let them as the, as the Lord says, I believe it was maybe two weeks ago in our, in our passage list, we had um, the Lord actually, actually saying that, uh, that I have chosen for my name to dwell in Jerusalem. No other place. You're not to set up any other place for worship of me. And he's to let his people go and worship there in Jerusalem. It breaks that, that line of conventional thinking. And so the kings fall, fall into it time after time. They worship in these high places because they don't want their people going down there. And yet that is the thing that ends up collapsing their kingdom. Whereas you would think it would be the other. You'd think it would be letting them go down there and letting them worship in the South would lead to instability in the North and people would want to migrate to the South. And actually the Lord is saying, no, the North exists because of my judgment on Rehoboam in the South. And I am putting this here, but you're to let them go and continue to worship me because they're still, you know, Jewish people, so to speak. Yeah. Other questions, Michael? What um, what constituted becoming king? It seems like every time somebody just takes the castle, they're king. I mean, what? what uh, did they that, do? That's probably not far from. <laughs> from it, actually, um, you know, it's uh, it's. I mean, as the saying goes, like I said, might makes right. Um, you see a lot of these people that come in and take the throne have a military presence behind them. So, oh, okay. so they, uh, like the, like, uh, Zimri with half his chariots, Omri with the, the general of the army, then, uh, Tibni who is against Omri, he has half the people with him. So, you know, and he, and we don't know much about Tibni at all, but potentially he's, you know, some sort of, you know, political figure or somebody with a lot of power persuasion and things like that, that gets a lot of people whipped up behind him. Um, so, you know, he, so, you know, again, Mike makes right. It's, it's sort of a, I guess more or less popularity contest in some sense, obviously spiritually speaking, uh, we know that, um, that the Lord is putting people on the throne. Um, and he's using some of these individuals as tools to overthrow and fulfill the prophecies that he's, he's giving to the kingdoms in the North Kings in the North. But I mean, it's kind of power is mostly, which we're America is an anomaly, you know, when it comes to voting people out and things like that. I mean, historically it's always been power. And I suppose America's not that, you know, that much of an anomaly anyway, who gets voted in to be president on the, I mean, for the most part, I mean, you can go down the line and you can see several of the same last names that have been, you know, president, you know, for many generations, um, you know, things like that. So um, it's it we tend to, you know, see certain people as powerful and, and tend to follow behind them. And, and that's kind of the way it's always been. But still under the sovereign choice of God, even though. Of course. Yeah, of course. Look, yeah, of course. 
Yeah. I mean, so any answer to those questions is going to have to be like, well, you know, physically here, here's what happens. This is how God institutes a person. There's power behind them. They come in militarily typically and take over the place. Um, but even in the U S right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't think there's any place that is immune to God's sovereignty. Um, you know, he's over it all. So anything that happens that transpires, I think that the, I can't remember who, who it was. It was telling me this, but you know, basically it was, uh, if you want to know God's will, just look at the past. (laughs) It's, you know, 20, 2020, there it is. Uh, you can see how God's will has unfolded in the past. His sovereign, his sovereign will has, has unfolded perfectly. Even in, we see it most first and foremost in the crucifixion of, of Christ. You know, Peter makes that evident in his sermons in, in Acts. You killed him, you know, but that was according to the sovereign choice of the Lord that he, that he was dead that way. So, um, you know, I think we can always say that about the past for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and hopefully we'll see you here next week and maybe even some of you in the service on Sunday. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity just to go through your word and uh, to just look at the succession of kings time after time and, uh, and see that idolatry is not worth pursuing. Uh, we have idols even in our own hearts of things that we hold um, near and dear, things that are of utmost importance to us, we think. Um, something as simple as your word tells us the love of money, um, riches and the deceitful nature of riches. Um, things, stuff, our own life can be an idol. Our families, everything around us, we can turn into an idol. And we pray that over time you would continue to reveal those things to us that we may squash them and instead may pursue wholeheartedly devotion um, to Christ, who is our King, who is worthy of our worship, who is um, exalted, who is sitting at your right hand, who will come again to judge the living and the dead whom we will dwell with for eternity in the new earth. Um, We are grateful. We long for that day. And we pray that our hearts would grow um, ever more desirous uh, to love and adore him, to worship him, to make him known, uh, to squash all the rest of the idols that would vie for our attention. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys.